Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Exodus 3. And if you don't, there should be one in the seat in front of you. Feel free to take that home with you if you don't have a Bible. That's our gift to you. As Tad said earlier in the gathering this morning, we've been talking about uh, various fears and the way those fears express themselves and how those fears, those ongoing struggles with sin can keep us from the life that God has designed for us and already given to us. So we're going to continue that today. In a little bit, we'll look at Exodus 3. You know, fears are tricky. They express themselves in many, many different forms. And they're actually pretty difficult to spot in ourselves. So one of the reasons we emphasize so consistently here as a church family, the necessity of living with each other deep in community, being involved in each other's lives beyond when we gather in this room, is that it's so vital to our spiritual health to know what struggles with fear we have. And oftentimes, the people who are around us can see those quicker than we, ha- we can. And if we've built good relationships, and those relationships are marked by transparency and honesty and trust, then we can point those out to each other and help each other walk freely in increasing measure in Christ. So just as we're getting going this morning, if you're not involved in relationships in a significant way and you consider this your church home, we would so encourage you to take steps to involve yourself with the people, yes, in this time, but beyond that time as well. So one of the practical tools we use to try and go about those are our small groups, which we call gospel communities. If you'll get on the church website, click on gospel communities, you can see a map where all those groups meet and they're all open. Any would welcome you to email the leader, get some more information about when they meet, where they meet, and I know a number of them would meet today. And then beyond that, to just men seek out relationships with other men and women seek out relationships with other women. Those one-on-one, one-on-two, ongoing relationships are some of the most important, vital necessities to living a life that honors Christ. You simply cannot do that well alone, especially when you come to this area of fear. So we'd encourage you in that way. Now, back to fear in particular. Sinful, fallen human beings, in other words, all of us, are prone, are susceptible to living out of fear instead of out of faith. And so all we're trying to do each week in this series is say that again and again and again in different ways, and yet not focus on the fear so much as the God who frees us from fear. Fear is tough to spot. Fear is a lot like a camo. It masks itself as something else. So what we want to do is say, let's bring that into the light, become aware of what those things are, so that we could live out of faith. And thankfully, God's Word speaks not just to our behaviors, which it does, but even more importantly, it speaks to our hearts, which is where the fear comes from. It lays out those fears of the heart so that we could walk in continual faith towards God. So if you've missed the last couple of weeks, we've covered shame and greed and worry and selfishness, and we've considered how being people of the gospel provides a better life than living in any of those things. And so today we're just going to consider another fear. The fear we're going to look at today is the fear of failure. One of the ways that fear affects us is that it can cause us to be apathetic people. So if you're apathetic about that, then 
This is for you today. Let me pray just real quickly, and we'll dive into that. Uh, Father, this particular message has been heavy on my own heart. Heavy as I've considered who we are as a faith family. And certainly there's many of us here in the room who don't battle apathy. We are people who roll up our sleeves and we're actively involved in many, many things, seeking to openly, courageously live out our faith without fear. And yet, God, there's many of us in the room who do struggle with apathy, who fear failure more than we live out of faith. And what we don't need is to be beat up over that and then to live in that fear even more. What we need is to be invited out of that fear into greater faith in you. And so we would ask you to use your word today to speak to us and to call us to live for something greater than ourselves. And that's you. And so would you speak to us today if that's the reality that we live in? And if we don't, if that's not our struggle, would you still help us to understand it better so that we could help those who do struggle with it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, maybe by way of illustration, we could start out this way. Uh, the Black Death, or simply as a lot of us may have studied it, the plague, was a horrific European outbreak in the 1300s. It was known as the Black Death because people developed big, disgusting boils full of blood and pus, usually in their armpit or their groin, and they were black, not the people, the boils. And those boils were the first indicator that you had this disease. Most everyone who developed the boils, what happened to them? They died. This death crept into town after town, city after city, for years. It crept silently, and sometimes people would go to sleep healthy and then simply never wake up. That's how fast it could come on you. Its spread was mysterious, and nobody could slow it down, let alone stop it. For those of us that have been out of school a while, you may have forgotten the numbers. Within five years, roughly one-third of all of Europe was wiped out. Imagine the speculation, the rumors, the fears that would grip that entire continent as this illness, this shadowy death, affected not hundreds or thousands, but literally tens of millions of people. One source described it like this. Doctors refused to see patients. Priests refused to administer last rites. Shopkeepers closed stores. Many people fled the cities for the countryside, but even there they couldn't escape the disease. It affected cows, sheep, goats, pigs, and chickens, as well as people. In fact, so many sheep died that one consequence of the Black Death was a European wool shortage. Many people, desperate to save themselves, even abandoned their sick and dying loved ones. Can you blame them? No one understood why this disease was spreading. No one could discern the transmission of the disease. It was stealth. It was deadly. So the smartest people of the day couldn't predict it. They couldn't protect from it. They couldn't prevent it. They couldn't tell you this is what it looks like when you're going to come down with it. This is how to protect yourself. Nobody knew. So they did all kinds of really crazy things. 
I got interested in this this week and read a whole bunch on it. That's weird, isn't it? Um, <laughs> one of the things they would do is boil really foul-smelling herbs because it was thought that maybe transmission was happening through smell. Another thing they would do is take poop and smear it on people because then if you smelt really bad, you wouldn't get the disease. So guess what that did? Spread the disease. Now, we know the plague now was primarily caused by these little guys. Let's see a picture of them. Rats. Rats came in on ships. They bit people and people spread it to more people. Then they freaked out, put the people back on the ships, sent them to the next port town, and the same thing happened again. Over and over and over and over. Rats spread something called Yarsinus pastis, which was a microorganism that caused this disease to spread. Common knowledge today seems obvious what you should have done, but at the time, nobody knew what to do. So entire cities would be full of healthy people, and then the Black Death would creep in silently, slipping in unnoticed, and wipe out entire towns. That would have been scary to live then, would it not? What the Black Death of the 1300s was to Europe, spiritual apathy is to our day. Spiritual apathy creeps in unnoticed. No one detects it. And before you know it, it's taken over not just a person or two, but it's wiped out an entire church. And then if it's left untouched, it wipes out not just an entire church, but a whole denomination. Nobody seems to notice its presence until it's bitten and spread and caused great harm. Some fear it, but just like the physicians of the 1300s did ridiculous things to try and prevent the spread of the plague, we take outlandish steps to cure the emptiness that we feel, but we don't realize what we're suffering from is the disease of apathy, spiritual apathy. Christians, nearly every sin you struggle with may be rooted in spiritual apathy. You just don't realize it. Just one example, some of us in the room, particularly if we're younger, gorge ourselves on video games and Netflix because without noise, we can't stand the deafening sound of our spiritual emptiness. We confess we believe in a Savior who gives life to anyone who will call in His name and we experience anything but that life. Spiritual apathy does immense damage. Let me give you just a few illustrations of that. Some people walk away from this church, not a church, this church. And sometimes we don't care enough to seek them out. Something as simple as a phone call or a cup of coffee or an email. We just simply let people wander away, never to see them again. Some of us see people in need of food or clothing and we remain emotionally unaffected by that, let alone willing to actually give something. Sometimes fathers leave their wives and kids, and nobody tells them that they're leaving not just their wife and kids, but they're leaving the God of their salvation. 
We think it's normal to believe in God, but to never, ever, ever talk to him. That's not normal. We know friends who are headed for hell, but we don't care enough to lovingly tell them the good news of the gospel. We struggle with chronic sin, but continue to commit it in private for years because we're more afraid of what people think of us and to invite people into that struggle who will help us than we are willing to resist it. We're more satisfied with stuff instead of overwhelmed with gratitude for the Savior. We gawk at the international news instead of praying for people to find the gospel in the furthest parts of the globe. I honestly believe that hundreds of years from now, people will read about our particular day, American Christianity, and they will say those were people with so much money, so many gifts and talents, so much intellectual wealth, people so creative with tremendous resources, and yet the vast majority of them were spiritually apathetic to the power of the gospel. One of the curses of our age is spiritual apathy. Now, what in the world causes that? What is the the virus that, if you're bitten by it, spreads a laziness spiritually? Well, at its root, spiritual apathy may be, for some of us, nothing more than an inordinate fear of failure. We may live in a little spiritual cocoon where we feel it's safe for us, but don't risk beyond ourselves simply because we're afraid of failing. It's possible to feel failure failure so much that we become cold and indifferent and spiritually apathetic to the urgent needs all around us. When God's answer is go to them, share my gospel with them. So today we want to roll up our sleeves and think about this together. And a few of you are still sitting in here. So that's fantastic. You haven't fled the scene. I've tried in this introduction to say, here's the problem of spiritual apathy. And it is a huge problem. Huge problem. There are many, many, many churches and places in the world that the spiritual vibrancy is much greater than it is here. That I don't think has anything to do with our culture It has everything to do with our um, lethargic approach to our faith. Maybe it would help us to look at an example of spiritual apathy. So we'll do that, and then we'll conclude today with a remedy. So the problem of spiritual apathy, an example of spiritual apathy, and the remedy for spiritual apathy. Now, if you are discouraged, like I am, giving that introduction... Maybe you can be encouraged by the fact that one of the most important people in the entire story that God has been telling, Moses, battled with spiritual apathy. Moses feared failure tremendously. He had experiences with God that might be more vibrant than some of us have experienced. And yet he still feared failure. And he looked at that failure as bigger than God. So we're going to take a long section of Scripture. And so I hope you went to bed early last night so you do not fall asleep in the middle of it. Exodus 3. I'm just going to read almost the entire chapter and stop at several points and make a few comments. And 
before we read it, just to point out to you that the main emphasis in this passage isn't a fear of failure. It's God's love of his people and God's pursuit of his people and God's willingness to grow to weird, extraordinary measures to seek his people out and to save them. But as he's doing that, one of the things you simply can't miss in the story is Moses' fear of failure. And so we'll look at that together. Chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, a priest of Midian. And his flock, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses, this is a, just a fa- fabulous verse. I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Moses is a smart dude, isn't he? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals. For the place that you're standing is holy ground. And he, this is God, said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a land that's good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites, and gee, that's a lot of ites. (laughs) And now behold, the cry of this people of Israel has come to me. I have seen their oppression, that the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now maybe if you're hearing this story for the very first time, the significance of it doesn't readily stand out to you. But very briefly, the backstory is that God had promised hundreds of years before to a man named Abram that he would become the father of a great people, And that through that people group, the Jews, the gospel would spread to the entire world. And that some from every tribe, tongue, and nation would come to know Jesus. And thus that heaven one day after God returns would be made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And yet at this moment in time in Exodus 3, those people, the Israelites, had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. That's a long time. And so... This people for generations had been praying that God would intervene. And so literally generations of people had come and gone without seeing the answer to their prayers. They had begged God, beseeched God, would you come and deliver us out of Egypt where we're building evil things for evil people and rescue us to go back to Israel where now this group that many say was nearly a million people, maybe more, could live freely, worship freely, and show the world what it meant to be a people living for God. And so God is coming to Moses, this nobody, 
and saying, you're the guy. I have heard the cry of my people. This would have been an event that Moses would have been spending his entire life praying for. So this wasn't out of the blue. This was something he longed for and prayed for. Day after day, month after month, year after year, God's people were slaves to a polytheistic Egyptian culture. And God is now saying, I'm going to rescue you out. And Moses had already had experiences with God prior to this. What was the very first thing that happened in Moses' life that was a big deal? Anybody remember? He was spared death. So the people were multiplying like rabbits. So Pharaoh said, we're going to put a stop to that. We're going to kill every Jewish boy. And so that's what they began to do. But Moses was spared. His life was spared. So he would have known there is a God who intervenes in miraculous ways. And now, in a, in a surprise to him, this God is saying, I'm going to send you. I'm going to commission you to go and set the people free. Now look at verse 11. And Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? That's a logical question, is it not? He is one guy who's hiding out in the desert because he killed somebody. And God's saying, I'm going to send you back and... Pharaoh will listen to you and you'll be able to set the people free. I think it's completely appropriate for Moses to say, okay, God, but who am I that I should do that? Completely appropriate. And of course, the great answer God gives him is verse 12. And it is the great answer God gives you. He said, I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. You, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. So go easy on Moses at this point. We won't in a few minutes. But go easy on the guy. He's hearing a talking bush. He's hiding in the wilderness. He has not been to Egypt in years because he fled. And God's telling him to go. And God's saying, I'm going to be with you. So Moses' first question makes a lot of sense. He's saying, God, why me? But it gets a little worse. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, Well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? So he first said, God, who am I? Why should I go? Now he says, God, who are you? God said to him, and this cleared it all up, I am who I am. And he said this, Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The the God, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders, which as an aside here, our our church family is in the middle of a process. There's a group meeting this afternoon, in fact, led by Scott Wakefield, who you elected to the task of studying what the scriptures say about elders and proposing to us as a church body later this summer that we adopt a new form of church governance. 
New Testament elders are rooted in a very old concept all the way back in Exodus 3, that God's people were led by groups of people called elders. That was for free. All right? Now, 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you. I have seen what you've been doing in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt, out of the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites. That's a lot of sites. A land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness Does that ring any bells? Three days journey? Might be something going on there. Maybe we'll talk about another time. Now I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, verse 19, unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. When you go, you won't go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. Does this sound like the outcome is up in the air? Is God speaking to Moses with any hint of this is contingent on how well you do in the task or how eloquent you are or how strong you are or how persuasive your personality is it's is it rooted in his education there is absolutely no hint from god's part to moses moses i really need you to do this really well or it's not going to happen that's how we think about the tasks that god gives us is it not god go ask somebody else somebody who's stronger smarter cuter, more wealthy, got a better education, doesn't stumble over their words. Go ask somebody else, God. So Moses started with, well, God, who am I that I should do that? And then that got shot down. So God said, well, who are you? Moses said, who are you? And God opens the curtain of history and he says, I've intervened for my people again and again and again and again and again. Moses, you know that. So just go tell the elders that and call them to obey. And I'm going to do this. And here's how it's going to happen. The mission is promised to be successful. God says, this isn't going to fail. All you got to do is go. And I will do it through you. He pledges to do miraculous things. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord didn't appear to you. Now at this point, God's still being exceedingly patient with Moses. Every answer that God gives Moses, Moses says, That's not good enough. I got another yes, but. Yeah, God, but what about this and this and this? Moses was definitely a cup half 
empty guy. And God keeps pouring back into the cup, saying, Moses, I've got this. You can go. God is a gracious God. God is a gentle God. God is a loving God. So he mercifully spoons another bit of truth into Moses' mouth again and again and again. Now, for time's sake, jump down to verse 10. Here's kind of the highlight of Moses' viewpoint on the matter. Moses says to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and tongue. There it is. God, you might have done that for Abraham and for Isaac and for Jacob. And they clearly had it all together. They clearly never made any mistakes. And God, they don't talk very good. So I can't go. I can't do that. What an idiot. God himself is saying, I will be with you. You can do this because I will be in you, working through you. And Moses is more overcome by his fear of failure than he is led by his faith. Think about what has already happened here. God himself has spoken to Moses. He demonstrated his power. He invited Moses into the joy of being used by God. And he made it crystal clear the success of the mission was not contingent upon his ability to fulfill it, but upon God in him. But Moses is so mortified by his own sense of unworthiness and weakness that he's spiritually apathetic. Think about what Moses is actually saying. He's saying, yeah, God, I've prayed that you would do something for my people. And my dad prayed for that. And my dad's dad prayed for that. And my dad's dad's dad prayed for that. But when it really comes down to it, I am not invested enough to go if I'm the one that has to do it. So I want you to help my people, but not enough that I would be involved. You send somebody else. Because I don't talk very good. I wonder, can you relate? Christian, have you been cold and indifferent towards people because you're spiritually apathetic? And are you spiritually apathetic because your fear rules your heart more than faith? If so, you're in really fantastic company. Moses was the same way. Look at verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, this point he's just maybe a little miffed. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, and look at the grace in these words, go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. The grace of God when we say, no, I won't do it. 
I'm afraid, send somebody else. God's grace is incredible. But another spoonful of grace still isn't enough for Moses. Verse 12, but he said, Oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. God is giving Moses the way out of slavery into freedom. But Moses would prefer to stay cowering in the desert. It's illogical. It does not make sense. It's not rooted in fact. But that doesn't keep us from doing it either, does it? Of course not. Like some of us, Moses had been bitten by the spiritual black death. He's all wrapped up in spiritual apathy because he's mortified by a fear of failure. So this is a big problem. And here's just one example of it. Now let's fast forward 1,600 years. All right? You ready? Acts 7, verse 22. That'll be on the screen. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. One of the very things Moses said he couldn't do. 1,600 years later is written in the Bible itself. People still talking about it. How? How did that happen? How did the guy cowering in fear in the middle of the desert become written in the very word of God 1,600 years later? How? How did that happen? Exodus 3.12 gave a promise. Five simple words. I will be with you. That's how. Moses eventually went, and God stayed true to his promise. God was telling Moses, Moses, I'm God. All the resources of the entire universe are at my disposal. I'm sending you on a mission. I will be with you. My power is yours. Simply obey. Rest in me and go. And if you don't know the story, take some time this week to read the rest of Exodus. You'll see it. Moses ended up doing really incredible things. Not because he was great, but because God is great. Not because somehow his weakness with words disappeared, but because God's power is perfected in our weakness. So much so that 1,600 years people are saying, Moses, the very thing you thought you stunk at, God used to demonstrate his power. It's tremendous. So friend, are you afraid of failure? Are you spiritually apathetic? The remedy for your spiritual apathy is to remember the same promise that God gave Moses he gives to you. I will be with you. Five words. That is the greatest promise in the Bible. It's the greatest five words you will ever hear. Those are the most confident 
producing, peace, investing, joy, loving words God will ever speak. Because you don't deserve it and I don't deserve it. But at the cross, we who are separated from God are brought near. We who are alienated from Him have our sin exchanged for the very life of Christ to be put inside of us so that everywhere we go and everything we do, God is with us. When we place faith and trust in God, when we turn our sin over to Him and repent, that's us giving up control of our lives. It's us saying to God, God, I'll go anywhere and I'll do anything. You just got to lead me. And then I'll go not in my own strength or in my confidence, but in yours. So the same power that enabled Moses to go to Pharaoh and led God's people out of slavery in Egypt is the exact same power available to you, brothers and sisters. So if we were going to parallel those two things, God himself has spoken to us just like Moses. That's what the Bible is. It's not simply a book. It's God speaking. It's God's words alive, given to us. Just like Moses saw the power of God, we have seen the power of God. Just like Moses was invited into the joy of being used by God, we too are invited into the power of being used by God. Just like God said, I'll be with you to Moses, God says, I will be with you to us. And maybe the thing we need to hear the most, just like Moses was promised success in his mission, we too are promised success in our mission. But our mission isn't obviously to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, right? No, our mission is far more important. It's infinitely better. Our mission is what Moses' mission foretold. It's what the whole thing was about. It was the point of the Israelites being led out of slavery in Egypt. That event, historical thing that really happened, happened so that us, we, God's people, all these years later, would be given the graphic picture of sinners being led out of slavery to sin into life with God. That's what that was for. And so our mission is to invite people, not out of slavery to the Egyptians, but out of slavery to sin. And not in the freedom of living in the land of Israel, but of the freedom of living as God's people gathered together, prefiguring what we will be when Jesus returns. Isn't that cool? Christian, when you feel fear failure, you need not drum up your own strength. You need not simply try harder. You need not beat yourself up. You need not say to God, God, I'll do better next time. You need to simply say, God, help me to fully trust and believe that you are with me. And then to go in faith. The cross and resurrection are the conclusive proof of God's unconditional love forever. They are the pledge of God's presence in you. 
And the mission that He's given us is urgent. And the voice He wants to use is yours. So repent. Rest in Him. And then go. Let's pray. I wonder in just a moment of silence, if you're here and you're a Christian, would you pray and ask God to help you see your own heart, to help you understand if you're apathetic spiritually? And if so, is that because you fear failure more than you trust God? If so, confess that to Him. Pray for increased faith. Confess that you believe that God will be with you. Tell him, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, the Bible is not the story of really strong, bright, beautiful, always God-loving, amazing people who were the triumph of our faith because they were exceptionally better than the rest of us. Rather, the Bible's the story of busted, broken, beat-up people who made tragic mistakes, yet who you came to, you initiated, you pursued. And you said, Moses, you're mine, and I've got a task for you, and I'm going to go with you. And God, what Moses certainly could not have fully understood because he lived before Christ came to earth, we now look back on We have seen the fullness of what Christ-likeness is because Christ came and lived a perfect life. He showed us what godliness is. And then he died on the cross so that all of us who are broken and busted and beat up can turn from our sin and receive your very life in us. And like Moses, we have a mission. We have been sent That mission is to make disciples. It is to share your love with people in our word and deed. We're to do that collectively as your people. And we're to do it individually throughout our weeks. And we have so often failed because we've been afraid. God, help us to live as people of faith, not fear, of courage, not weakness of strength in you. Not petty selfishness and self-pity. God, may our joy and confidence and life be so vibrant and rooted in you that we're willing to risk rejection, lost relationships, awkwardness, social phobias, because you're greater and you're with us. And I pray specifically over my brothers and sisters in the room who know of people who have thought today of folks they need to share with, that God, they would remember you're with them, that your power is perfected in their weakness, and that they would go even today 
And we pray that our gospel communities, as many of them will gather this afternoon and this evening, would be filled with conversations and prayers about people in our lives who don't know you and would be full of transparent confession of apathy. And God, that we would be renewed by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Logan, would you send us out with God's word? The gospel has unshackled us from every kind of fear, especially the fear of failure. We are now called to live unashamed of what he has done for the gospel. We are no longer dead in sin, but alive in Christ. As we grow, as we grow in awareness of these sins and fears, let us grow in our faith and repentance. Let us grow in being bold in evangelism and urgent in prayer for people who are without Christ. Romans fifteen thirteen, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You're dismissed.